Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Nikita is CEO and co-founder of MemSQL. Nikita, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Nikita, why don't we get started by having you tell us a little bit about your background? You are the CEO of MemSQL, but you've got a pretty technical background. Isn't that right? That's right. So I'm a PhD uh, in computer science from St. Petersburg, Russia. Uh, and I moved to the States to work on Microsoft SQL Server, which I did for a number of years. So I have a very strong database and query processing background. After that, I I moved over to Facebook where I was blown away by the magnitude of data problem Facebook was solving back then. And since they only only increased in magnitude. (laughs) Seeing that and combining the visibility into those workloads and kind of making that assumption that in five years, a lot more companies are going to be facing those challenges just like Facebook. I decided to start a company and combine that, that database background and expertise of building systems. And the, the early stages and the glimpse of the workloads that I saw at Facebook, so I kind of knew where the world was going, going into. So that triggered my desire and gave me some insights into starting MemSQL, the company. So we've been at it for uh, six plus years and certainly validated some of the assumptions we, we had starting that journey. Mm. So I've been I've come across MemSQL and I think of the company as an in-memory database. You know, tell us a little bit about what the focus is there and in particular you know, what's the intersection between what you're doing and machine learning and AI? Are you seeing a lot of those types of workloads nowadays? Definitely. That's certainly uh, where our customers uh, are moving towards. But let me step back for a second and talk about MemSQL and in-memory database and technology. Okay. Uh, We started as a purely in-memory database. And then since we've evolved to support a, a large class of applications that I built on top of MemSQL. And in memory became an enabling technology, but it's not the technology at MemSQL. As uh, a matter of fact, the, the key advantage that MemSQL brings to the world is the fact that it supports SQL, which is a structured query language, and the fact that it runs the database in a distributed environment. So you can run MemSQL on your laptop, or you can run MemSQL on a thousand hosts. That gives you an immense compute power to enable the new class of applications. So let me talk about what kinds of applications we support. Certainly some of them have to do very little with AI and ML, and MemSQL enables scale, Latency. You, you can build very low latency applications uh, on top of MemSQL, and that's where in-memory technologies come handy. And you also can build applications that require very high levels of concurrency. And that concurrency is enabled on top of the system of record. So MemSQL supports state, and it supports full durable persistence. SQL also allows you to build uh, what we call real-time applications. And 
kind of the idea of real-time applications is the opposite of batch. So every time you need to do analytics and you do some sort of pre-calculations upfront using Hadoop's or data warehouses or any other offline and batch-oriented technology, that's basically our enemy. So we're, we're bringing the world to be completely real-time and perform all the computations that you need to live. And we deliver it on mm-hmm. you know, extremely low latencies by leveraging an immense amount of compute. And that we can do very, very well because MemSQL is a scalable technology that can run on, on clusters of commodity hardware. So mm-hmm. now where AI and ML comes in, well, because we support this new class of applications, the fact that our customers are incredibly forward-looking, they want to do more with the technology and they want to blend classical database workloads with the new types of computations that are mostly stemmed from the AI and ML needs. And one of the big ones that we see all the time is image recognition. So we can talk, we can talk a little okay. more about it. So let's say you have an application and you, you use that to power and you use MemSQL to power that application. The application is large scale. There is a ton of data that's stored in MemSQL. Like I said earlier, in-memory is an enabling technology, but it's not the technology. You can actually pull, put a lot more data into MemSQL than there is memory on the cluster. And okay. what you want to do is you want to enable smart applications, the ones that make decisions on uh, either on behalf of a user or they provide recommendations or they provide some sort of search capabilities on top of unstructured and semi-structured data. Imagine um, an app that has a camera, it runs on, the, on your cell phone, you snap a picture with this app, and just in a few tens of milliseconds, this app finds similar images to the one that you just took a picture of. So why is it useful? Well, it's useful because you just enabled visual search. And the way we do it is we build, uh, we built some of the building blocks that allow you to run and operationalize the machine learning models, and we build them straight into the database. And now the database allows you to scale them and deliver very low latencies for this type of operations. So that would be uh, one example of, of, of an application. I can give you another one, and which we see a lot in the IoT space. Before we go into the next example, can you drill down a little bit into what specifically MemSQL is doing to enable the first example? You know, for example, are there pre-trained models, you know, for image recognition or image similarity in this case, built into the database? Kind of like you know, you might think of a stored procedure, or is it? You know, is there something else? Is it a different type of functionality? Yeah, it's even it's even lower level than that. Um, MemSQL certainly supports stored procedures, and but in this particular case, we implemented a few building blocks, particularly dot product and Euclidean distance between okay. between vectors. Oh, that and is if, pretty low level. <laughs> yes, and if you if you take a a deep learning model and you look at the layers. You know, matrix multiplication, tensor multiplication, vector multiplication is the the fundamental building block. Mm -hmm. So what we do is, as we train that model, we take all the layers except for the very last one and apply it on the database of images that we have. And that allows us to extract what we call, you know, or anybody else calls a feature vector. 
-hmm. which is just a vector. So once we have that and we have a model, applying that model to an incoming image, which you just took a picture of uh, with your cell phone, will produce another feature vector. And it just so happens that the multiplication of those two feature vectors normalized gives you the similarity score, how, how close those images are together. So the heavy lifting of building a model belongs to somewhere else. And the data may might as well uh, be still stored at, in MemSQL and we enabling very fast data transfer in and out of MemSQL in a parallel way. So we can send it into Spark or TensorFlow or any other training framework. But once it gets to operationalizing, operationalizing that model and performing the last mile computation by really powering your app, then MemSQL gives you that scale and it allows you to perform those computations pretty much at the memory bandwidth speed. That enables really low latencies for that last mile computation. Okay. Does it make sense? Okay. And no, it does. So you're you're computing these feature vectors. Is that happening as is that happening on right of new images or is it happening? I'm assuming that's the way you would do it since you're anti-batch. You're not doing some big batch job that's like updating, you know, some column in your database with your feature vectors for all the images that are in there. Correct. And you can do both, uh, you can do either, but the typical okay. workload is once you have that model, you're applying that model on right. And we have technology, it's called pipelines, that allows you to perform arbitrary computations, either in a story procedure or an external piece of code. That's where you can invoke all third-party libraries to apply that computation and then the store uh, the feature vector in the database. So you can do it in okay. ingest. And if the, let's say you build something like you, you crawl the web or you crawl uh, your, your own product catalogs, and once you identify those images, you immediately stick them into the database. As, as you do that, we trigger that computation. So the feature vector arrives into the database at the same time, instantly, as the actual data. And now it mm -hmm. immediately participates in all sorts of computations. So that allows you to never have kind of stop and go computations. You never do, okay, step one, load all the data. Step two, perform the, uh, the batch computation on top of all the data into the database. And step three, do something else with it. R rather that uh, it's all streamlined and it just flows in and out. Mm. And so how does this play out in the IoT case? So in the IoT case, data is incoming constantly. So one of the uh, use cases we have with a large energy company is to ingest IoT data from uh, drill bits. Apparently in the, in the world of uh, fracking, you tend to drill a lot more. And then there is mm. a non-trivial cost for a broken drill bit. Those, those things are extremely expensive. You have to stop your operation if, the, if a drill bit breaks. So you, you're losing of... Uh, not only on on the fact that you're fishing this thing out from the ground from hundreds and, and or maybe even thousands of miles deep, but you're also not producing oil, which is um, a, an operational cost. So what we do, we ingest that uh, real-time data, IoT data, and we're scoring that data, applying a machine learning model in real time. And then there's an application built that arrests the drill bit before it hits a problem just by measuring temperature, 
and all the very uh, you know temperature throughput all sorts of of kind of vital signs of the drill bit uh, of the drill bit as it mm-hmm. goes through the ground and so that was step one and step two is obviously you feed back all this you feed all this information back to direct the drilling so in the world of fracking drilling is directional so it's not just uh vertical down in, into the ground but it's it's more like you're changing the direction as you go and, and, and drilling. So right. using all that input, you can direct the, the drill bit to okay. make the whole operation and a lot more efficient. And what are some of the algorithms that come into play in that use case? So they started with, you know, like every typical data science, they started with uh, some sort of linear regressions. They, they moved it to decision trees very quickly. And now they're experimenting with deep learning. Mm-hmm. Uh, for that as well, and, and the beauty of that uh, of the solution that we presented is, it integrates natively with all sorts of third-party libraries. So we made the experimentation for them very, very straightforward. They started with SAS, where they produce uh, okay. produce models in SAS. As you know, SAS is a, a proprietary technology, but right. since they've played with Spark and, and now experimenting with TensorFlow as well. Okay. I was actually going to ask you about Spark and how that fits in with your model. Do you, I imagine you see it out in, out working with customers. Is it a competitive technology, Spark plus the rest of the Hadoop ecosystem, or is it complementary, or how do you see that? So all the big data technologies overlap a little bit. In sure. the case of Spark, I would say it's 90-10. So it's 10% competitive. Okay. And 90% complementary. And, and here is why. Spark doesn't have state. The state is usually stored somewhere else. It's either HDFS, mm-hmm. a relational database, or, you know, S3, an ob- uh, uh, some sort of object store in the cloud. Mm-hmm. So what we do in this case is we provide an extremely performant state. And the combination of MemSQL and Spark that's the 90% case. They work really, really well together because we give you that transactional scalable state and, and, and nothing else on the market can give you that state. So not only you, you, know, you can store, uh, you can retrieve, but you can also compute. And we have a world-class SQL query processing engine that allows you to produce reports, but also allows you to modify that state in a transactional fashion. You can say begin transaction, insert, update, delete. You can run it at high concurrency, and uh, you can you have full durability and, and all sorts of guarantees for that data. So that's where mm-hmm. we're extremely complementary. The typical deployment model is that there is a data lake, and that data lake stores you know hundreds of terabytes or petabytes of data. MemSQL is deployed alongside of the data lake to provide to power applications because you you cannot write applications on top of Hadoop because Hadoop is batch. So now, and then Spark is the glue between those two and it allows Mm -hmm. you to have rapid data transfer all the data that is born in MemSQL based on the, you know, based on the interactions with applications. That data is captured. You can pick it up and Spark um, very, very easily. We have a world-class Spark connector. Drop it in the data lake for historical, archival, compliance-type storage, and then provide some, and then perform some overnight batch computations. Take the results of those computations, stick it into MemSQL, 
and Spark oftentimes give you that unified API because through that API you can interact with MemSQL, you can interact with the data lake, and, and that becomes um, uh, kind of the go-to API for application developers. And MemSQL in this case just gives you SQL. Then you can attach a BI tool directly into MemSQL and then they can scale the concurrency of you know data scientists attached uh, that attach their BI tools to MemSQL and look at the reports and visualizations. And is it primarily data scientists and folks that are and, and kind of end user use of MemSQL? Or are you also uh, in this scenario attaching your traditional applications to MemSQL or using some other state technology for uh, building applications that, you know, refer to this data? Well, mostly it's actually application developers because MemSQL powers applications. And because the nature of applications is changing all the time and we have higher scale requirements for the applications, MemSQL is, is a perfect technology to power applications like this. I'll give you a few more examples of such applications. Now, because modern applications have AI and ML requirements, that's where that intersection comes in, where you need to, to have those models and, uh, that you produced somewhere in your, in your data science lab, and you want to operationalize those models. And that's where MemSQL plays very, very strongly. So do you envision kind of along the lines of you know what Spark's done, kind of building higher level abstractions beyond dot product and Euclidean distance to enable folks to do machine learning and AI uh, more easily? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. We have a number of ideas that are, are circulating uh, in, inside the engineering team and certainly influenced by, by our customers and what they want to do as a technology. What the customers see in MemSQL is that very, very fast, scalable state that's, that they can deploy uh, inside their data centers or in the cloud on the cheap, right? Because MemSQL provides world-class compression. It has column store technology. And that state is very fungible. You, uh, because we support uh, transactions, you can change that state. You can enrich that data with uh, attributes that you compute on the fly, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, what people want to do is they want to perform computations that are beyond SQL. So we're, we're world-class in SQL query processing, and that's great. And our, but our customers want to do that and more. And when they want to do more right now, we resort to Spark. Right? We say, okay, well, deploy, deploy Spark alongside of MemSQL, pull the data out, and we'll, we'll give you that data very quickly, perform the computation, put that data back and then leverage some of the building blocks that we have, you know, basic arithmetic operations, vectorized operations, uh, vector operations to do the last mile computation to power your applications. Now, mm-hmm. like once you do that, you just want to take that loop and you want to tighten it up. So you start bringing all the computations that you today taking out of, today you're taking data out of MemSQL, put it somewhere else in a temporary store like Spark uh, data frames, and you want to perform those computations in place. And there are two, two interesting problems in that space. One is what the API should be. And today for uh, machine learning and AI, the APIs tend to be either Spark-driven 
or the Python library ecosystem driven, you know, the likes of NumPy, SciPy, Pandas, TensorFlow. So it seems like the, the Python world lives in, in one universe, the Spark world lives in another universe, and then there is the SQL universe that is pretty much ubiquitous because every database exposes SQL as, as an API, and also data warehouses expose SQL as an API. Our our view that the Spark universe uh, and MemSQL universe should be enabled by rapid data transfer between the two. And then the Python universe should be enabled by pushing some of the computations that you express through Python API into the database and, and putting them on steroids. Now, what exactly does that mean? And can you give an example? Yeah, totally. So let's say you're performing a non-trivial computation on your data. Let's say you have 100 terabytes of data. You know, certainly more data that can fit on your, on your laptop and you're a data right. scientist. And as a data scientist, your stack, you live in the Python world. Mm-hmm. And, and you're a, a big expert in the libraries like Pandas, NumPy and SciPy, and let's say you, you're playing with TensorFlow as well. So mm-hmm. it's very natural for you to express computations on that data to perform, to perform training or perform scoring uh, on that data in, in that Python world. The problem is all the computations are single-threaded and all the computations are in memory. So, so you're stuck at this point in time because you cannot access 100 terabytes of data because there's no way you can put 100 terabytes in memory. And that's where we see the world is going to where you want those computations to become instant and parallelizable and scalable, not so you can just, instead of bringing that data into your high memory machine, you can perform those computations in place in something that's uh, very, very scalable, uh, like MemSQL. So you're gonna see more and more of that happening over time. You mentioned the the you know three different kind of modes of interacting with this for machine learning or in general, Spark, Python, and SQL. Are there any efforts to extend SQL to give it some kind of machine learning expressiveness? Like, you know, SQL's got, you know, all kinds of aggregation operations like select average of X, you know, you know, where, whatever, right? I can imagine, you know, something like, you know, select predict, you know, why, you know, where, whatever, where you're kind of telling, expressing in SQL that you want a prediction, you know, based on some, something, you know, does that exist? Are are folks playing with that today? Yeah, so uh, if you look at the history and you look at products like, you know, good old products like Teradata or Netiza, mm-hmm. or if you look at SQL Server integration with R, that's certainly okay. something that, that is happening where training is not happening in the database, but scoring is. That's a natural way to do things. We achieve the same functionality through pipelines where we score data on ingest. Okay. So I think this is valuable and you'll see databases exposing more and more primitives, the likes of dot product and Euclidean distance, but you'll have, instead of two, you will have you know, 100 um, of those built in into the database. And then you will see packages where it's just a, a, a package of storage procedures, which allows you to, to, to run those predictions. 
And those will work re really well for simple use cases. Now, mm -hmm. if you look at the world of a data scientist today, they actually don't like that. Uh, they like to live in the world of, of uh, data frames where there's a lot more control over the types of computations that people are expressing. People like to, uh, people understand that world of data frames very, very well. So I think the future is going to be actually in paralyzing and speeding up computations inside data frames. So, uh, so that, that's just my opinion. Do you envision doing training directly in the database? In the same way as, as I described the interaction with the data frames. So if you want to enable inference in the database, then you don't want to have the database, you don't want to have the database to be a crutch where you're constantly fighting and trying to shoehorn that computation into SQL. The natural way to mm -hmm. expressing those computations is operations on top of data frames. However, if you make the database naturally support those data frame computations, then you have tremendous value uh, from the fact that the database actually owns the state and you never need to transfer that state from your, your storage to something else. So you're bringing computations closer to data. So that, that's where I'm, I see the industry is moving in the next you know, five years. You just mentioned bringing computations closer to data, and that's obviously been one of the things that the Hadoop ecosystem has you know, made more readily accessible to folks, this idea of data, locality. You know, do you get to take advantage of that with machine learning types of models in general and this pipelining approach that you have in particular, or are the pipelines run you know, outside of, you know, separate from any concept of locality of data? Well, locality is, is, is a loaded concept, right? So you can start with, okay, well, I want to perform computation exactly on the same machine where the data is stored. So that's kind of the extreme case mm -hmm. of locality. Another way to think about is, as you look at the, at the computation plan, let's say in the database, terminology that would be a query plan. So let's extend the definition of a SQL query plan to a broader concept of you performing some sort of arbitrary scalable computation and you know all the steps in the computation up front so you can optimize those computations and produce a query plan for those computations and you will run that query in the distributed environment. Now then you look at this and certain primitive computations, you really, really want to perform closer to the data because you will save tremendously on the amount of IO that is happening for in the data transfer. Now from there, if you do that, you also deliver on the concurrency of such computations. So now you can perform those computations at a high, uh, highly concurrent, in a highly concurrent environment where thousands of data scientists are attaching to the same data that is collected and centralized and stored in something like MemSQL. And then, and then they're performing their computations concurrently. So there are no, you're opening up all the data to the organization and, and not having any data silos. So data locality for computations is, is useful where it makes sense and not as useful in, in a way in a in a broader general purpose 
way. And the perfect system would be engineered around pushing the computations closer to data where it, uh, where it makes a ton of sense. For example, you do a lot of filtering or uh, you, you're performing a lot of what is called group by operations. And those operations make sense to, mm-hmm. to be done locally. Those operations make sense to be done in a, in a vectorized fashion by leveraging you know, the latest and greatest CPU instructions uh, in the Intel hardware and, and so on. It makes sense to leverage indexes, so you prune massive amounts of data so you don't even touch them for, for your computations. And then from there, mm-hmm. it makes sense to bring all that data into a stateless distributed environment and perform the rest of the computations. So that approach allows, uh, allows you to build greater scalability for your system compared to a traditional database, compared to Hadoop, or compared to Spark. Okay. And now you just mentioned the taking advantage of the instruction sets of the underlying hardware. And you guys are making an announcement with Intel at Amazon reInvent next week. Is it related to that area? Definitely. Intel has been supporting vectorized instructions for some time, for over a decade. And every new generation of CPUs increases the size of the vector that that you can use and perform vectorized operations on top of. And where we stand right now, it's 512 bits. So compared to, Mm -hmm. you know, matrices in a GPU, this is tiny. However, when you perform a last mile computation like dot product, it allows you to perform that computation much faster than the memory bandwidth that you have. So you actually don't need more for that, you know, last mile computation than AVX 512 because your limitation is not your compute. Your limitation is memory bandwidth. This is very, very different when you train models and and perform computations for building, you know, deep learning. That's where you perform Mm -hmm. a lot of tensor multiplication. And the amount of compute compared to the size of your data set is tremendously more when you're performing something like dot product. That's where you want GPUs. Okay. But but once the model is built and the model is trained, you actually don't need GPUs to score that model in many many cases. What that gives you is the it gives you the ability to to democratize that computation because Intel CPU is is everywhere. You know, if a machine has a GPU, it also has an Intel CPU. And what and the point that I'm making that in many cases all you need is a CPU and you're not going to get the computation faster if you add a GPU to the system simply because it's the memory bandwidth that's, uh, that's your bottleneck in the computation. Now, we use AVX 512 for product, for Euclidean distance and, and for other vector operations that we built into the database. We also use AVX 512 for general purpose SQL computations. And that allows you to just deliver on orders of magnitude faster SQL query processing that uh, our competitors have and certainly what, what Hadoop has or Spark. We, we're huge fans of that technology and we can't wait when Intel allows us to, to perform computations on larger vectors, not just 512 bits. Mm-hmm. Can you be more specific in terms of some of the actual results you've seen in you know, production systems in terms of performance differences? Yeah, absolutely. So with MemSQL 6.0 that we just released in 
October, we can do things like a group buy operation on 100 billion row table in a sub-second. So 100 billion? 100 billion, yes. Wow. So it says a sub-second operation that, that, that runs something like give me an, an average stock price over 100 billion data points and, uh, and, and group it by uh, security or by stock value. The computation itself is relatively straightforward, but because we perform that computation, quote unquote, on compressed data, so, and we're using those vectorized operations, we um, achieve the performance of a billion operations per second per core. So if you throw 100 cores into the, sec- uh, into the system, and then SQL is extremely scalable. So you can throw 100 cores, or you can throw 1,000 cores, you can achieve those this, this type of performance on your system and so that's using the avx 512 instructions what were you seeing prior to that well there's a combination of two techniques that goes into into this type of performance the first is how can you perform operations on compressed data so if like i said earlier oftentimes it's the memory bandwidth that's the bottleneck of your computation so the the better you compress but the better off you are in the final computation because at the end of the day, you scan fewer bytes. What exactly do we mean by compressor? Is it kind of your traditional, you know, binary compression or are we also talking some kind of deduplication or something like that? It's a combination. So first of all, the compression is called column store compression. And we also encode similar values. So let's say you you, uh, in that, example that I said with stock trading, you have 10,000 different stocks. So if you have Mm -hmm. 10,000 different stocks, then each individual stock can be encoded with just a few bits. And so then you only use this many bits to represent each stock value. And as you perform your computations, you never go back decoding those bits into, let's say, an integer value or, God forbid, a string value of a stock. Right, because those mm-hmm. computations will, will become much more expensive. So okay. now that you perform uh, computations on compressed data, the second step that you do is you optimize your computation for as few branch mispredictions and as few cache misses as possible. And those are mm-hmm. a big deal because every time you have a branch misprediction, you flash your CPU pipeline. So that, that slows down your computation. So if you express okay. your computation so there are no, branch, uh, no branches, basically. And there are some very, very cool papers out there, and there is some innovation that we, we've done here at MemSQL as well. So that will be, give you uh, the second boost. And then the third boost is now you take all those bits that you represent your values, and you perform vector operations on top of those encoded values. And then that's where you use AVX512. So now, uh, and that gives you kind of another... I would say, you know, three to five X performance improvements just by using AVX 512. But if you take that, plus you take operations on compressed data, plus you take care of branch misprediction, you multiply those, all those together, and then you can routinely see two orders of magnitude improvement in performance. Wow, that's pretty fantastic. Kind of the point here is, Fancy hardware is cool, and you want to use it where it's needed, but also there's a lot of potential in the hardware you have at hand, and if you take full advantage of this, of that hardware, 
you will have remarkable results. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's great. I guess as we, you know, as we kind of wrap up, do you have any additional kind of advice to folks that are looking to, you know, get better, you know, just to take better advantage of, you know, whether it's their, you know, their data storage systems, their, you know, hardware systems, and to, to use these to make better, you know, predictions and better utilize machine learning and AI? Well, my advice here is don't settle. There are systems out there such as MemSQL that allows you to take pretty much your end-to-end machine learning, AI, and application development pipeline and make them completely real-time. So whatever you do in batch, whatever you have to wait for, with the right technology can be squished down to zero. Is that the technical term? Uh, squish to zero. <laughs> so, yeah, say that. <laughs> and and that's where the world is going. So we'll 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 live in the world in the future where compute where compute and storage are going to be utilities. And you know mm-hmm. if you if you're willing to pay for compute, you will have as much compute as you need at any concurrency as you need and any latency as you need. And the only thing that it's going to be bounded by is, is the amount of money you, you uh, pay for that compute. Mm, great. Uh, well, Nikita, thank you so much for spending the time to chat with me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. Thanks so much for listening and for your continued feedback and support. For more information on Nikita, or any of the topics covered in this episode, head on over to twimlai.com slash talk slash 84. To follow along with our AWS reInvent series, visit twimlai.com slash reInvent. Of course, we would love to receive your feedback or questions either via a comment on the show notes page or via Twitter to at twimlai or at Sam Charrington. Thanks once again to Intel Nirvana for their sponsorship of this series. To learn more about DeepLens and the other things they've been up to, visit intelnirvana.com. And thank you once again for listening, and catch you next time.